G'day, humans. This is an exciting, new, unusual little mini episode. It's a great conversation with my, you might say, new boss, not really boss, colleague, partner in crime. Professor Alan Davison is the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney, which is my alma mater. And he is a relatively new Dean. He hit me up last year during the COVID pandemic, because I think he was a fan of this podcast, and suggested that we work together on a series of conversations with sort of heterodox thinkers, the kinds of people who I like to get on this podcast anyway. Why not combine the resources of UTS and of moi and see whether or not we can't have the kinds of conversations that universities should be having more of with the kinds of people who don't fit easily into the political and cultural boxes that we like to force people to inhabit these days. The professor is a relatively new hire. He's a new dean. He has a vision for a university of free thought, of free expression, of exciting ideas that is not so stodgy and weighed down by, I suppose, the groupthink that you can sometimes find, especially in cultural studies faculties of various universities. And he's trying to create a a safe space for dangerous ideas, which ho-ho just happens to be exactly the subtitle of this very show. If you're listening to this for the first time because you came here from UTS, hello and welcome to Uncomfortable Conversations with Josh Seps. If you are an Uncomfortable Conversation with Josh Seps fan, then you can find out more about what we're doing with UTS by searching for Permission to Think. Permission to Think is the name of the collaboration that this show now has with the University of Technology, Sydney. And we'll be cross-posting these conversations. So you'll get the audio in full of the of the upcoming guests here on the podcast feed. And you'll get video clips for faculty and staff and the general public on the UTS website. So without further ado, let's hear from the man himself what he has as his vision for this little adventure. It's Professor Alan Davison. Professor, you've got me in here as a visiting fellow. Is that what I am? Absolutely. Why? Why? Well, a variety of things to do, Josh. Firstly, we want your humour, your industry expertise. Uh-oh. I Uh-oh. know. <laughs> so we'll see how we go. <laughs> At least you put that on your CV, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but look, what we're really keen to do is get someone in that can have useful, open-minded, robust conversations with a few really sort of key intellectuals in the areas that I'm really keen about and that really align with what I think the faculty should be doing going forward. What are what sort of areas? Well, anything from race relations, sex, gender, politics, you name it. Evolutionary all the hot button stuff, baby. All the hot button stuff, that's right. What's missing in the in the discourse that you're trying to fill? Well, I think there's quite a few things missing, one of which is because they're hot button. I think even academics and experts self-censor a lot when they talk about them, which is perfectly understandable, you know, people have careers. The social mob is powerful. And whilst we have tenured academics or the equivalent of tenured academics, perhaps not quite tenured here in Australia, we've got something like it. But even then, having a social mob come out of you and, you know, after you and demand that you you shouldn't be in your role or that you're causing hate speech, which is causing harm, etc., I think it makes a lot of not only academics but also students, um, you know, question do they want to go there. And self-cent- You mean by go there, do they want to speak honestly and wrestle with some of these issues in ways that don't conform to 
what the Twitter mob is going to like. Yeah, and, if, and the Twitter mob's not, of course, the majority. The Twitter mob is a loud, very active, vocal, possibly minority. But I think self-censoring is the tricky one because when we talk about, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of inquiry, freedom of expression, etc., often the bit that's missing from that is the degree of self-censoring or fear of social mobbing that sits behind that. So I think part of this series we've got you in to do is to try to sort of lift up the hood of social mobbing, if you like, mm. of the of the Nazi beetle VW, and let's <laughs> let's lift up the lid and actually and actually see what are the things that people can and can't talk about in their minds and why, and that's why we've got I think a really interesting list of guests coming up, who have scholarly expertise in the areas they're talking about. They've got, dare I say it, lived experience that gives them legitimacy to talk about those things. And they'll be able to share their ideas about how they curate and pass and navigate often very complex and difficult things that for many people, say your typical student or your typical academic or your typical listener to a podcast thinks, yeah, I agree with that, but I wouldn't know how to express it. I wouldn't know even how to enter into a conversation about it. Just on your claim earlier that there might be professors who who have otherwise very stable uh, employment at academic institutions who feel like they are afraid of the, the mob coming after them if they explore some of these issues. Is that a phenomenon that's happening here? I mean, we see a lot of concern about it happening on social media, especially in the States, and we've seen videos of professors trying to negotiate with mobs of students at Yale or Princeton or wherever it was and uh, and things going the wrong way. Is that something that has made it to Australia or are you just concerned that it will? Um, well, we, we often follow the states a little bit behind, don't we? So that's one thing. But I think it would be good to have the conversations before it gets that bad. So we don't want, like, an evergreen here, if you know what I mean. Yeah, do we just explain evergreen? So evergreen... Um, a few years ago now, it's a, a college in the States and famously Brett Weinstein um, decided to uh, not adhere to a, a stay-at-home order on a particular day. Not a COVID <clears throat> stay-at-home order. No, it was pre-COVID. A, a racially uh, discriminatory stay-at-home order. Evergreen's a very progressive college. And yeah, so in, they, in his view. Yeah, yeah they thought it, well, it was discriminatory. Yeah, on the, on the face of it, um, whether or not you think it's good to discriminate against That's white right. professors or, or, or not is another question. But it, it was a request that white academics and white faculty and white uh, students should stay home That's to correct. have a, an all-black day, and he, he felt that that was exclusionary. Yeah, and students, including some of his black students, uh, actually wanted him there on campus, but others didn't. So, so that evergreen was a bit of a flashpoint in the states. It devolved into essentially him being hounded and the police having to secure his his life and liberty in a way, and then him being losing his job effectively. Yeah, and you end up with the perverse scenario where people claiming words of violence. Uh, you've got a professor hiding from people who are actually threatening violence because they're saying his words are violence. You know. Mm. Now, hopefully, we don't get to that stage in Australia, but you know, don't know. Yeah. There's a, there's a concern that you sometimes hear from the left that when you have these conversations in the guise of free speech, what you're really doing is just trying to smuggle in bigotry uh, and use free speech as an excuse to, to do it. What's your response to that? Oh, that's no doubt correct. Yes. I mean, the, the thing is this becomes, a, this becomes a hobby horse of the, if you like, the right very much so because they see uh, examples of uh, suppression of viewpoints diversity of perspective, et cetera, and they say, look what's happening. Uh, you know, political 
political correctness gone mad, it would have been called a few years ago. <laughs> um, and, and there's absolutely a legitimate point to that. But I think we need to look at underneath the fog of that claim, which in principle I agree with, there's also very legitimate, carefully, carefully considered, thoughtful people who have views that we should be hearing because you can agree with the perspective of a cause without necessarily agreeing to the solution to it. So I think this is the sort of hashtag era we're living in, isn't it? Where um, we identify significant social, political, cultural, sexual, gender, whatever problems with a hashtag. And that's good because it, it motivates people to get on board and do something for change. That's very positive. But of course, the discussion, and I would argue the critical role of intellectuals and academics, is to talk about the how, the how and the what precisely, rather than the general principle that we want to be supporting X people or this minority or this this group that's subject to bigotry, etc. So that's absolutely good. That's absolutely on the money. The question is we need to have nuanced discussions about the how and what are the, the evidential basis, if you like, for progressing a particular line to, to intervene or to engage. And one of the historical environments in which those kinds of conversations would take place in which people would wrestle with those big ideas would be universities. I mean, universities were places which you came to in order to push the boundaries, in order to explore ideas that would have been taboo elsewhere. And historically, that's an important role that universities have, have played. Do they still? Well, possibly at risk, but we'll find out, won't we? <laughs> um, look, I, I agree. Look, there's one place that a university... There's one role that a university should have above all others, and that's that critical, nuanced, intellectual in inquiry into challenging issues, if you like. Um, and if that fails, then I'm concerned about the, the downstream impact of the universities not doing their job properly. Because the risk is, as universities become more linked into, if you like, activist causes, there's nothing wrong per se with being involved in an activist cause. But if that activist cause means you turn a blind eye to certain types of evidence or you don't ask certain types of questions, then actually intellectual institutions are failing in their fundamental duty, which is their intellectual labour, not activism. Well, can you give us some examples of areas where you think that activism has gotten ahead of intellectual labour? Um, well, firstly, I'd say that's up to our guests to do more uh, in more detail than I would possibly do. Sure, but you'll be you'll be sketching the rough contours of what kinds of guests we speak with. Yeah, so say the role of religion and belief with how say uh, how genders dealt with within say high control communities, etc. What's a high control community? So a high control community would be say a conservative uh, ultra orthodox Jewish or highly conservative Muslim community, and then of course you can go into your sort of cultish groups if you like as well. You know Scientology at the extreme, then you've got your JWs and all the rest of it. Um, they're, they're communities that have very strong um, isolationist approaches to um, their values and also hostile to the outside world, be it the outside world being anything in particular, democratic, freedom of the sexes, right to vote, you name it, uh, the right for women to be educated, to get a job, all those things that exist in you know those high-control communities. We should be able to talk about them uh, with absolute scrutiny irrespective of race, colour, creed, etc. And uh, some of the guests we're going to have on, and I'm sure you'll have a good chat with them when you do, they're, they're coming from within those communities or they know a lot about those communities and they'll be talking about how, if you like, in some ways the Western liberal intellectual movements let them down 
because they're not asking the right questions because they don't tick the right boxes of identity. Right, meaning that there's a, a Western liberal consensus that you don't want to come across as, for example, Islamophobic, so you don't criticise uh, sexism in the Muslim community. That's right. And, for example. And that makes it really tricky. I've got quite a few uh, good ex-Muslim friends and one of the things they talk about, and some of them are quite public, so people like uh, Yasmin Muhammad would be a good example, and others, and Alham Manea would be another one. They talk openly about we're trying to get progress, uh, progressive values and challenge a whole lot of orthodoxies within certain communities or belief systems, but we see you know, well-meaning, upper-middle-class, white liberals standing on the side saying, oh, I can't talk about this. Right, and and then, of course, there are issues like uh, gender, sexuality, uh, race. I mean, we, I, as you know, I have many black friends in the States who have a problem with the way that Black Lives Matter tries to put race at the forefront of the conversation and, and they feel it strips them of a certain amount of individuality and autonomy and optimism about their lives by making them feel like they are uh, the subjects of experience rather than the people who are actually in control. That there's a that if you live inside a dynamic of uh, white supremacy and white oppression, then as a person of colour, that's actually disempowering. They find rather than empowering. So that would be another area where the drive to perform our own uh, moral righteousness as well-educated white people on a university campus might actually conflict with the interests of empowering people of colour. Yeah, and part of it's the matter of, you know, who has the right to say what? And I think in the sort of hashtag uh, social media mob mentality, there's certain types of lived experiences and, if you like, self-identification that counts for credibility that goes well beyond the actual uh, the veracity of the argument. And it doesn't invite scrutinising evidence. It doesn't invite a fair, fair-minded, good-faith discussion to dispute details and how to intervene and how to make a difference. Mm. And a lot of that, I think, has to come down to there's now a conflation of what used to be called the ad hominem, you know, attack the person, not their argument. And that, that's a well-known sort of critical flaw in critical thinking. Um, you, you talk about the argument, not the person making the argument. Well, nowadays, that's, that's almost disappeared. There's an authority that comes with someone's self-professed identification and mm. lived experience that now gives them an authority that in some places unquestioned. And you see that in the media a lot where you know, there'll be a person that's promoting a particular cause and is representative of that cause can come onto a mainstream news show or interview program, etc., make a whole lot of claims which are actually factually disputable, you know, where is the evidence for this and that, show me the data and etc., but I don't think people are prepared to ask because that person speaks with an authority that basically strips away the possible for good faith argument because so much of the intellectual or pseudo-intellectual discussion going on at the moment is about identity and identity has now usurped the ability to have good, critical, robust arguments because there's simply not enough good faith around. It's amazing, isn't it, that and sometimes I'll just pull this trump card on people who, who who think like that because as someone who's married to a man myself and as someone who had parents, uh, grandparents who were Holocaust survivors, uh, if someone disagrees with anything I say, I can just accuse them of being a homophobic anti-Semite mm. and it's very, immediately I have standing uh, because well, I have lived For a few experience. more years, let's see how that goes. <laughs> well, that's true, exactly. But it is interesting that that, that, that lived experience, like there's no doubt that in a conversation between 
a woman of colour and a white man, if you're talking about what it feels like to be subjected to sexism or racism, then the woman of colour has more standing in that conversation. Like there, there is no grounds on which the white man can pontificate about the emotional experience of being subjected to racism or sexism. But what has happened is that reality has now spilled into even intellectual abstract arguments about policy or data. So that if they're having a conversation, for example, about the disproportionate number of Indigenous Australians who are incarcerated, the white male can't even dispute the facts on the ground without it being without it landing as if he is making a racist claim. And then the woman of colour is able to say, well, I would certainly expect a, a white man to talk mm. down to me and to try to, you know, minimise the lived experience of blah, blah, blah. Well, hang on, I wasn't minimising the lived experience. We, were, we, we weren't talking about personal experience. We were actually talking about policy settings and facts. Yep. I'd say it's almost a little bit worse than that because I'd say even taking back a step, the point you made, that even the representative, say, person of colour who's speaking from lived experience, they're often selected. There are lots of people of colour, there are lots of people in the Indigenous community who will not toe the line or speak what, say, a progressive liberal should think is the, uh, the right things for an Indigenous person to be saying, for the right things for a Muslim person to be saying, the right things for a gay person to be saying. I think there's a naivety that, you know, when someone appears on a talk show or, or a documentary or a news program that is there supposedly to represent an entire group, which is dubious in the first instance, mm. what it's ignoring is there is often a plethora of different perspectives and, and there's, a lot, there's heterodoxy within these so-called groups. And what happens, of course, is if you get a person of colour saying something that doesn't toe the line, they're accused of acting white. When you get a gay person perhaps supporting traditional marriage, they're accused of acting heterosexual. In other words, who is selecting who is representative of these so-called groups? Mm. And we're getting very lazy, I think, in bringing people into institutions, into mainstream media and elsewhere, where it looks like they're speaking on behalf of a group that's actually much more disparate. Right. But those disparate voices within those so-called groups are either not being heard or when they are being heard, they're being slurred as, oh, you're just, you've just gone over to the mainstream, you're right. acting white. They're Uncle Tom's. That's right. Yeah. And apart from being extremely offensive to the ethics and the intellectual veracity of those people themselves, it also means, well, what do you do if you're outside that group looking in, trying to have a good faith discussion? Who is the person that, that faithfully represents that so-called group? Mm. And I think we're getting very lazy, and particularly in our media, but also in academia where we tend to have people that represent entire minorities as if there's not minorities within those minorities or groups within those minorities that have very different perspectives. Right. Who's defending the rights of the 15-year-old girl in the hyper-conservative Jewish community to become an atheist and to break out of her community. No one on the outside because they're listening to the chieftains of that community exactly. who, are the, who are the rabbis at the head synagogue and her father and uh, no one inside the community because for the very same reason. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, coming back to what the purpose that universities are supposed to provide, you know, universities are supposed to be a place where individuals can wrestle through things right. and, you know, and the dissident can be upheld and, you know, there is a, a valour in bucking 
what bucking conventional wisdom and in pushing back on on received wisdom and it is as you say as you talk about the way that we engage with minorities it is a bit disheartening because it's almost like it's tribalism it's tribalism and we are assigning each tribe a chieftain and the chieftain gets to talk you know the chieftain has the conch to mix metaphors and novels and allegories and we only listen to whoever's got the the conch and if you're too weak within that minority to be well not too weak i don't want to make it pejorative if you're inside that that minority group and you're not being uh permitted to speak by the forces outside that minority group then you have no voice because we're not listening to the individual anymore. We're not listening to the dissident. We're listening to the chieftains. That's right. And it actually compounds the minority status of those within certain so-called communities even more because the outside doesn't want to listen because they're not following the narrative of those that are so-called, you know, re- representing them all their perspectives. Mm-hmm. So really I think it's up to certainly universities, obviously up to the media, up to any good journalist, but certainly within universities, we need to interrogate that assumption because for me it speaks to a certain, on the one hand, laziness, let's get a representative person to speak on behalf of something. Uh, why are we choosing that person? What are they saying? Who else can we, ch- you know, can we test that against others? That's one thing. And the other thing, it makes questioning it in any good faith, uh, nature of argument, nature of the data supporting that argument, uh, the worldviews around it, it makes that very hard to do um, as an outsider to those communities or an outsider to, from those minorities. So part of the, the idea of this series that we're doing, Permission to Think, awesome title, um, is to get people on who are, on the one hand, representative. They have deep knowledge within communities. They don't pretend to speak on behalf of those communities because the communities are heterodox, but they've got deep knowledge, deep academic and intellectual insight into the complexities of um, issues of race, gender, politics, etc. And that's what I'm looking forward to our listeners hearing and and you to have a conversation with. Let's tease some of that stuff out because the people we're getting in have deep intellectual knowledge into these things and it's the opportunity to, if you like, open the eyes and minds of Mm. those those watching and listening. I'm glad you say deep intellectual knowledge of the community because that is another thing that is missing and I see it all the time working in the media. A certain tokenism towards representatives of a community uh, you know, if you're doing a story about indigenous, anything that has to do with something indigenous, then there's enormous pressure at the moment to make sure that the person you're talking to is an indigenous Australian. Now, it may well be the case that you know, and again, coming back to the emotional thing, if you're talking, if you want to do an interview about what it feels like to be an indigenous Australian, then of course you need an indigenous Australian. But if what you're talking about is something to do with tweaking the policy alignment of what the way that the federal government, for example, funds or structures uh, welfare for indigenous Australians, then it may be that there's someone who's done a load of research and has a deep understanding of the data, who happens not to be. Indigenous, and I've found myself in situations on the air interviewing someone who is Indigenous who would be the first to admit that they're not the best person to talk to about this because they're not across the data the way that another academic might be. But they're there as the stooge and they're there as the the, the token uh, person with more melanin in order, to, in order for us to feel good about being able to tick a certain checkbox. And what I think is important in these conversations is to make sure that the reason why we're choosing the guests is because they actually have a deep understanding, a deep knowledge of what they're talking about. They're not just coming from, you know, we're not plucking them out of a community so that we can pat ourselves on the back and feel like we're being diverse. Exactly. And so they've got not just lived experience 
which is important for them, but they've got that deep intellectual credibility and they've done, they've done the research to back up and support and often it's very closely related to their lived experience. Um, so I think it's going to be really interesting to hear. And the reason we've called this series Permission to Think is it's allowing those outside looking in who are well-meaning, progressive, want to make a difference and want to help those at risk or those that have been subject to bigotry historically or currently, it provides them with more tools to engage in that conversation in a much more nuanced way than just the hashtags and the slogans. Professor, we live in a massively polarised time where uh, it's very hard to be understood as having nuance without your opponents flipping you or even not, even your allies flipping you into one box or another. And we were speaking earlier about how there was a certain cohort of the ratbag right that will use the cloak of freedom of speech as an excuse for smuggling bigotry into the conversation and they'll use the excesses of the left by endlessly banging on about how terrible cancel culture is uh, as a way of demeaning and marginalising uh, trans people, people of colour, gay people, whatever it might might be. Is there a risk that in even broaching these conversations you get some friendly fire and end up the subject of a pile on yourself or the faculty or the university well, or quite, me? Well, quite possibly. I'd, I'd make a couple of comments about that. Firstly, the risk of not engaging and not getting, if you like, the sensible, well-meaning middle of people. If, if we censor some conversations from that well-meaning middle that want to do things, we create a vacuum. So who's left to talk about it? Who's left to contest it? Well, it's the right-wing ratbags. So you'll get often very reasonable people, social scientists, commentators, whatever, ending up going on a right-wing, you know, an explicitly right-wing news channel because the mainstream media won't want to talk about it because of its sensitivity. So it's a vicious circle. It's a perverse economy where because there aren't good, good faith, nuanced discussions in the middle, it creates a vacuum that the right can manipulate as much as the extreme left. So that's the, that's the first problem. And I think... That creates an economy that keeps going. So it means that those that, if you like, are given a platform on the right, even if they're not the right themselves. So famously, Brett Weinstein appeared on, I think, the Tucker Carlson show because nobody else wanted to listen to what was going on at Evergreen College. Mm. So then what happens is people on the left go, oh, look, he appeared on Tucker Carlson, the right wing, you know, the right wing shock jock sort of equivalent. Well, that's completely circular. It's got nothing to do with the validity of the ideas. It's simply about where you identify as a spokesperson in this sort of tribal divide. Mm. But you can see how that makes it worse. The right do not own critique. And if the moderate progressive liberals, small L liberals, if you like, don't take back some of these ideas, arguments and, and conversations, it will be owned by other people to the detriment of having a mainstream, reasonable conversation about it, driven by evidence and good faith. Mm. You remi- you're reminding me a little bit of David Frum's comment that uh, he was he was a George W. Bush speechwriter and became a, a never Trump anti Trump uh, conservative in recent years, but he was very concerned about the rise of far right parties, especially in Europe, and the rise of right wing populism in America, and he felt that the left was letting down the the conversation by not being upfront and honest about the importance of securing borders and having an orderly immigration process and what what he the line he used was uh you know if the left doesn't uh doesn't secure a nation's borders then fascists will uh which is the risk here yep. so yeah i suppose the the question then is 
it's a big task to try to carve out that middle to take fire from both sides, to be nobody's friend, to be an ally only of reason. Is that what you want, I suppose, the brand of this faculty to be? Very much so, but it's also what universities should be doing. And if they're not doing it, they're not doing the job. Are they not doing it? Uh, I'd like to see them do it more energetically. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> That's very diplomatic of you. I mean, look, universities are in this biz- bizarre place of being sort of semi-neoliberal corporate entities, um, which they, to an extent, need to be, and then banging the drum of, of social justice and progressivism. And there's a very interesting gap in the middle there, um, which can be attacked from either side or its opposite. I think the, the one thing universities should be doing is empowering deep critical inquiry, full stop. And if there's going to be an element of activism that comes with that, it's activism empowered by and predicated upon that deep intellectual inquiry. I think what we run the risk of, particularly in some disciplines more than others, but it'll, it'll probably continue to happen, is that we're getting, we're getting a culture in academia where we've basically got activist academics who are not challenging the basis of their own activist beliefs, but they're using the affordance of institutions and the fact that they're clever and they write clever things and they get on shows as experts to basically progress their activism. For me, that's completely the wrong way around. It looks good and it seems to tick the box for social justice and progressivism, but what's actually happening is, is the university doing the one thing above all else that it should do, and that is bring deep intellectual critique to ideas? Lastly, if you had to give advice to young people who are leaving high school and going to university and are a bit confused by the state of the world and aggrieved by the world that they've been left and fearful about climate change and uh, feel like the boomers haven't done the greatest greatest job of what they're inheriting, uh, what guidance would you offer? A couple of different things. I think there's a lot to be said for learning about one discipline very deeply. So on the one hand, I like the idea of being a generalist, uh, hence, you know, the classic BA degree, etc. Uh, do lots of things. But I think when you become a deep expert in one particular thing, you learn so much about how complicated and nuanced an issue is or a topic is, or at least you should be learning that. You should go to university expecting to be challenged to be challenged in a way that, if it's done respectfully, shouldn't trigger you, it should encourage you to question your own beliefs, and you should also be very wary of tribalism and the way that just because something sounds like it's a good cause, it means it's a good idea. Not the same thing. Well, it's interesting that you just say trigger. I just want to dig into that as well because I, the idea, you know, we want this conversa- this series of conversations, permission to think, to be what you might call a safe space for <laughs> for dangerous ideas, for ideas that are uh, difficult and likely to get you into trouble uh, if you only talk about them in sound bites. Uh, and yet the whole concept of a safe space is tricky at the moment because it can also be understood as being a space for intellectual conformity, a space where you're going to be protected from ideas that you don't like, that you're at constant risk of being triggered, uh, you know, the, even the word triggered, which started out as a legitimate psychological or psychiatric condition for people with PTSD and now just means I heard something that offends me, mm. um, essentially. Uh, how, how do you think about what a safe intellectual space means? Uh, 
First and foremost, there has to be an acknowledgement and a demonstration of good faith discussion. That is, it's two people or more listening to different perspectives, but trying hard to understand where that other person's coming from. And I won't use the term steel man. Let's use the word steel person. Well, it, look, but trying, a, trying to a, make the, But just explain that term because for people... Steel, steel manning is right. where, in, particularly when you're arguing with an opponent, you're trying to do the best job in good faith to articulate or re-articulate their view as strongly as you possibly can to then attack. It's the opposite of straw man, where you basically have a caricature of your opponent's views and then you say they're this and they're that and then they're wrong, uh, which is, a again, rather prevalent, but it's under the disguise of uh, you know progressive politics. So steel manning's the opposite. It's where you make put in real effort to really understand on what basis and what's the evidence for that person's idea which I don't like or I don't agree with. Once you've established that and that intellectual exercise, you then progress to argue against it, provided the counter evidence. But it requires some intellectual labour. It doesn't require slogans. And that's where universities must do that job. They must produce in our students the ability to steel man an argument and to give the best possible intellectual perspective of a view you don't like or you're opposed to in order to engage with it deeply and then you challenge that thing, not the caricature of that thing. It's also worthwhile just noting that for young people and for students in particular, shying away from arguments that are obnoxious to you or that are are offensive or that seem to be bigoted is no way to build up your own resilience in attacking them. And, like, you can't really attack something that you don't understand. Like, know your enemy is, is critical. And I do feel like we're losing the skill... Of, uh, of opposing our opponents in ways that are actually persuasive to our opponents because we don't understand what our opponents even believe. I, I was on Osher Ginsburg's podcast recently and he, was, he, he ascribed an opinion to the treasurer about climate change, uh, which was so ungenerous... Uh, an interpretation, something like, oh, you know, I'm sure that he just thinks, well, you know, I'm getting rich and my mates are getting rich and uh, that's that's all that matters. And I said, but that's obviously not what he thinks. What he thinks is X, Y, Z, and I, I steel manned essentially what I assume this person who Osher and I both disagree with believes. And it was staggering that it was so hard for him to get to the point of under- uh, of putting himself actually in the shoes of where his his opponent, the treasurer, sits. And I hope that this series can also do a bit of that by enabling, by like encouraging people to engage with ideas that they don't agree with that might be challenging to them because really safe space, schmafe space, <laughs> ultimately, like you're not going to be, a, you're not going to be a good warrior for the good fight unless you understand the bad fight too. Yeah. And I think what you picked on there, something which I'm concerned that students in universities will get is they'll feel it's simply enough to identify the category of the tribe of their opponent and pay no heed to actually what the opponent's saying. And that seems to be enough nowadays, which is the concern. You just stick people in a bucket. So, right, one For of, example, if someone is saying that they would favour less immigrate, lower immigration into Australia, then you call them a racist and you're done with them. You yeah. don't have to actually like, grapple with, with their logic. That and, and a multitude of other examples like that. So what happens is... Uh, people are getting very good at assigning a tribal identity to someone as if that's a skill. That's not a skill. That's lazy thinking. That's cheap. But it's what social media does. It's the hashtag. The whole point of coming to university is you get past that. 
Uh, now, it doesn't mean to say there aren't actual real bigots around. There's lots of things around and, and our minds and our views of who those bigots are might evolve over time. But when you ascribe bad motives and attach someone to a tribe, such as you don't need to engage in their argument, then you shouldn't be at university and university shouldn't be assisting you to think that way. Professor, you are a breath of fresh air. We're lucky to have you. I wish there were more like you and I can't wait to see what we can uh, what we can produce out of this series. Terrific. Looking forward to it, Josh.